When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. John Waite performs live at Wolf Trap in Vienna, Virginia tomorrow night. He joined me to discuss his chart-topping career from his British rock band The Babies to his solo hit Missing You to his supergroup Bad English, best known for the song When I See You Smile. Hey, John, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, it's my pleasure. Yeah, how are you doing? I'm doing good, doing good. We're uh, just getting people excited for your show here at Wolf Trap. I know uh, tickets are are limited there. The people have been buying them up, but um, you can't pass an opportunity to to talk with you. Um, so Thank you. What, what can we expect to hear? A lot of people, obviously, we remember your hits, but is there anything else you know you'll be working on, or is it going to be like a greatest hits thing, or what do we got? Uh, well, we're out on the road promoting a, a new three CD set called Wooden Heart, volumes one, two, three. It's like uh, a whole load of songs. Um, and we're doing a lot of unplugged storytellers things behind that. We've been out with Pat Benatar and Neil Giraldo playing in some really big places and it seems to work and it's got a lot of uh, charm to it. And in the middle of all that, we're going out and playing uh, headline shows as a full band, which is probably where we're, we're at with you on Wednesday. And, you know, life is good. We've been on the road for about three months uh, despite the COVID thing, and uh, we're vaccinated and masked up, and we're back to normal. We're just trying to follow the rules so nobody gets sick, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you said you've been back out on the road after COVID for like three months. How how did it, how did you spend the pandemic, the, that long year, year and a half? You know, was it a creative time for you? Was it a time that you kind of got to sit back and, you know, take stock of things, perspective in life? Or, you know, how, how did you spend that long hiatus? Well, when it kicked off, I was kind of like uh, just in a state of shock because, I mean, you couldn't even go to the the store without, um, you know, all the the rules of spent as staying six feet apart and wearing a mask and you can only go out once a day and stuff like that. It was pretty heavy. And I just stayed home, watched TV, drank some wine, ate a lot of food. And then towards the end of it, I started getting really restless. So I went in the studio and started work on, a, on an electric record, cut some tracks for that, and then recorded the third volume of uh, Wooden Heart. So towards the middle of it, I was kind of, um, I just sort of went down the torpedoes. I was going back out there and recording. So it was, uh, towards the end, it got creative, but for a while in the middle, um, I was just sort of like everybody else. I, I didn't really feel it creative because there was nobody to play to. So yeah, cool. Well, we're glad you're you're back out um, touring. Uh, you know, whenever I have someone someone uh, on here, you know, that well known like yourself, I always love hearing about your journey. So remind, take us back to the beginning. You know, born in Lancashire in England, and, and yeah. 
52. What sort of, you know, how'd you get into music in the beginning? Like what sort of stuff was maybe playing around music was playing around the house or, you know, when did you, when yeah. did you get by the bug? <laughs> well, uh, it was a musical family. We didn't have much. Uh, we lived in a cottage. It was the last cottage in Lancaster before the, the, the fields uh, went down into a valley. So we were kind of uh, at the highest point in Lancaster, my hometown. And we would, you know, watch TV and there would be like uh, Western shows, you know, Champion the Wonder Horse and all that stuff. And they'd always have, always have really great cowboy music. So my first experience of music uh, was kind of like cowboy music. My cousin Michael played the guitar really well, banjo as well. He's kind of famous in England. My brother Joe is a really excellent guitar player. And when he was about 11, he got a, a Gaia tone guitar, which is like, you know, they're worth a fortune now, but they're really kind of a cheap electric guitar. But I became aware of him going out and playing dates. And uh, I got up and sang in rehearsals occasionally. My mum played the piano. It, it all just sort of was there in the background everywhere I went. And when I got to be about 14, I started taking it more seriously uh, with Jimi Hendrix and the blues and all that stuff, the Beatles, Stones, who... And uh, the next thing I knew, I was kind of like uh, in a local band. And that sort of went on to London, going to London, playing any gig I could get my hands on, going to America, to Cleveland, to start a band that was there for like four months. That blew up. I went back to London and started the babies. And from then on, you know, you know the story really from that point. Oh, yeah. The babies had, you know, a bunch of hits that people will will remember. Um Tell, take me into a couple of them. I mean, isn't it isn't it time was was a big one. In, um, in, yeah, isn't it time? Every time I think you back on my feet again, head first, midnight rendezvous. Well, could you, could you do you have any good stories on, you know, let's say recording? Isn't it time? Uh, well, uh, it was kind of isn't it time was a, a strange one because I wanted to put on uh, African-American backup singers and we were I was influenced by soul music. So anything that was black. Uh, was an influence on me um, from Sam and Dave to Aretha Franklin to Otis Redding, um, all the greats plus the blues, you know. Uh, so it was an opportunity to put um, African-American singers on a, on a soul song, a white soul song. Uh, it was a very unusual thing to do. And I think it caused a lot of uh, consternation. I mean, we, we took them on the road and there was still quite a lot of racism in America. And sometimes it, it, it was, you know, I put myself between the girls and the audience. It was uh, a nail biter, but I, I believed in it, still do. And they were wonderful singers, you know. But that was a big step to have a top 20 hit with uh, a white guy singing and backup singers that were African-American. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, yeah, thanks for helping take it. Everyone take that step. Um, you mentioned Every Time I Think of You was another big hit for the babies. Uh, why well, do you think that song works so well? Well, what is it about that song? That's a, that's a gem. Well, it's it's like it's like white soul. You know, it's like I'm a white guy singing like white. Uh, I don't sound African-American, but all my roots are in the blues and uh you know, I think there's a charm to having an English guy singing that's that young, that's being backed up with a, with three girl singers from the church. You know, it was like a, 
it was a statement. It was a really big statement. And I, and at the time it didn't even occur to me, you know, I thought everybody in America was getting on and it was, it was lovely, but there was still that division, but I liked it. And I think a lot of people liked it too, because of that. And it was the beginning of a huge change in America. Absolutely. And then the other one you mentioned back on my feet again, any good stories about, you know, being in studio recording that one? Yeah, we would, we, we were at the end of the record and, uh, the record company were insisting we cut this outside song and the band actually cut the track. And I thought the melody was bad and the lyrics were bad. I thought it was crap. So um, I refused to sing it. You know, I wasn't going to be pushed around by the record company, but the, the last two days we were in the studio, I got up and I thought, you know, I could just turn that on its head. So I, it was called yesterday's heroes, the song, what a thing to be singing about when you're trying to get to the top, you know? So <laughs> I wrote this thing that was a reverse of that back on my feet again. It was like, I found the light. I'm going forward. Life's great. Watch this. And I got out of bed, lit a Marlboro light, had two or three cups of coffee, instant coffee, and uh, wrote the melody and the words for back on my feet again, went in the studio and sang a whole different song on top of the other song. And it was a hit and the record company hated it, but uh, we all hated the record company. So it didn't really matter. Our biggest following was live. Every time we went out, we were selling out or opening for really huge bands and getting the entire place on its feet. So back at my feet again, translated very well to, to where we were. Oh, definitely. Definitely. And then uh, post babies, you're, or I guess sort of concurrently, I guess you started doing solo stuff in 82 um, with ignition. Yeah. Um, they had the song change on there. Um, but of course the big thing everyone will remember is from the, the next one, no breaks, which is yeah. missing you. I'm not missing you at all since you've been gone. We all know those lyrics. Uh, yeah. Again, uh, do, <clears throat> tell us how that one came together. I mean, that, I mean, that might be your most, you know, iconic song of your whole career. Damn. Oh, I think so. I don't think I'll ever beat missing you. It was the right time for that song. Uh, we were mixing the record and uh, it was done. We had like eight tracks and we thought, well, they're fairly long songs. You know, it doesn't matter. We're finished. We thought we had a great record, but I didn't. I think I was restless. And when, when David Thorner was mixing the record, I was taking a couple of hours a night to go off and work on different songs. And one night I was working with this guy and uh, we were looking for the song that we'd been working on the night before and couldn't find it. And he hit the play button at the wrong time and a different song came up, a different uh, instrumental. And I liked it. Uh, it was like, gun, 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 gun. I said, wow, that's like something I'd write, you know, let's try and put a melody on that. So I went in the spare room, put the headphones on, got on the mic, sang all the way through it, knew where I was with it, kind of. And then he hit record and I sang Missing You. I sang the whole first verse and chorus in one bit. I didn't even know I was going to sing Missing You. And uh, I used Every Time I Think of You, which was a baby song, just to get me going. And after that, I just sang the whole thing. It seems implausible. I'm sure that people go like, yeah, sure. But that's how it happened. The babies used to do the same thing. I'd kick off a song and just start making up lyrics. And the next thing you know, it's done. Um, but I knew where I was going and I was a long way from home. And the two things uh, gelled 
and I, you know, the muse was there and um, missing you. Next minute I know I'm number one, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's a song you'll still hear all the time. You'll be watching a random movie and then you'll, there it'll be in the yeah. credits. Or something, you know? <laughs> it, it, will, uh, it will outlive it, you and me. <laughs> yeah, you know, they'll probably play it the day I die. It'll go like, we ain't missing him at all. <laughs> uh, you know, it'd be one of those things, you know, but um, I was very lucky to have that. The babies had like four or five major songs and Bad English had like maybe four or five major songs and the number one and Missing You was number one. And the albums I've made since have been number one on radio, you know, like the most played thing in America that week or whatever. But um, when you are young, you can be number one on the billboard chart because the music business was different, but you were singing to an audience that was going out and buying records. Now it's very, very different, but um, you can have a number one record and it makes no difference whatsoever to anything. You're, you put a record out and it's gone in two weeks. So I'm very, very lucky to have had the career I've had and uh, got this sort of incredible following that just keeps showing up. So I don't take it for granted. Without the audience, I'd be um, digging a ditch, you know? I mean, they really have stuck with me through thick and thin. Absolutely. It is all about the audience. I'm glad to keep the focus on them. Yeah. Um, well, cool. Well, then the other main thing we need to talk about then, of course, is Bad English. Tell us about the formation of that super group, because that was, you know, you, you know, you got you picked off a, a main piece of Journey and, you know, a bunch of you guys joined together for, for a cool band there. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was, I'd got off EMI. They let me out my contract because they were going through a lot of changes. And it, we tried to, uh, Rovers Return, that album, we tried to uh, bring that home, but they changed the head of the company. They went from EMI America to EMI Manhattan. They, they downscaled for a year to get themselves back together. And, you know, it didn't work. So we shook hands and uh, I went my own way. My manager at the time, Trudy Green, walked me into Epic, which is a fabulous major record label, one of the biggest in the world ever, with a great staff, and she knew them, and they wanted to sign me. So I went in to meet the A&R guy. He's the guy that's going to check what kind of songs you're doing if he wants to sign you. And he didn't like what I'd written. He didn't think Missing You was that good or whatever. I'd have no idea. And uh, I wanted to be on Epic. There was no doubt, and and Trudy could really make it all happen if I was on Epic. So after we left that meeting, I was kind of like thinking, what am I going to do? You know what? I have to be on this label. This is this is the future. And I thought, okay, I'll put a band together. I'll, I won't have to deal with the A and R guy. It'll be five or four of us, and it'll be a harder trip for him and easier for me. So I started to put a band together. I think I might have been influenced by David Bowie doing Tin Machine. Out of the blue, David put a band together with the Sales Brothers, and it came out as Tin Machine. And I thought that would be really something that the public didn't expect. So the story goes on. But uh, after about three months, we had a band. We had two of Journey, two of the Babies, and we had the Dean Castronovo, who was an unknown young drummer, be the drummer. And uh, we came out roaring. You know, we had a number one album, number one single, sold millions. It was just great, you know? Well, yeah, that number one single, everyone will, anyone that's, 
that's uh was around at the time or even since has seen any of those you know monster ballad compilations <laughs> on tv knows knows when i see you smile, you smile. So, yeah no great one so uh wasn't that written by diane warren diane warren an old friend of mine we were trying to be nice to the a and r guy at the end we'd we'd done all the, we'd written all the songs we kind of put him in the doghouse really and um I'm a reasonable bloke at some point. I said to the band, listen, this guy's been really cool. He's stayed away. He's let us do what we do. Why don't we just cut this song he's trying to get us to do as a thank you? And we don't have to do it. It'll just be a show of respect, you know? And we cut it. We didn't think it was going to be a hit. You know, I knew Diane really well. Uh, she stayed at my house. I mean, she's a great girl. And, uh, I thought even for Diane, you know, show the respect of at least we tried it. We went in the studio and we cut it and everybody being what they are, played the shit out of it. And it just, it, we all stood back and went, oh Christ, no, it's number one. And um, we had doubts about it because it was so radio friendly. We didn't want to be seen as that kind of band, but it was a huge hit. You know, it was a massive, massive hit around the world. So. Aerosmith had done a couple of Diane's songs. So, you know, she was, it was the right thing to do, you know, but I think we would have been probably uh, a lot bigger if we'd have just released The Price of Love that we wrote and then come with the heavier songs. Who knows, you know? Right. Well, it was a massive hit regardless. <laughs> you know, you can't argue with the number one song. I mean, I've been number one on the Billboard chart twice in my life, once as a solo and once with bad English. And on the other charts, I've been number one maybe 10 times. And like I said, the Billboard chart, when people look back, that's the national chart in America and therefore the world. If you've done that twice, you know, you're going to be taken seriously for the rest of your career. I mean, that's probably why I've been able to go off and do acoustic albums or make a rock album or uh, do a duet with Alison Krauss, which I did. It's because I feel I've paid those dues. I don't want to keep being number one on the Billboard chart because that's, that's like a full-time job. You get up in the morning, you start writing songs worried about being number one. I've never worried about it. And both times... Both times I've been number one, I didn't expect it. And uh, the other 10 times with the other radio sort of programs, uh, it, it's always been well-earned. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of muscle went into it. But um, you never go after that kind of success unless you're really trying for it, like Madonna. But uh, I'd rather just make the music I want to make. And if you like it and the audience like it, then we're all in love, you know? It isn't like going to the well and trying to draw an extra bucket of water. You're just having a great time. And if you're having a great time, it's infectious. Absolutely. Well, it's going to be infectious, I'm sure, um, down at Wolf Trap um, well, let's on Wednesday. Like, yeah, let's hope it's not COVID infectious. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, exactly, exactly. It's. Uh, I know they got all the protocols there, and then you can yeah, cool. to, head over to wolftrap.org to see, you know, in the vaccine mandate and the mask and all that kind of thing. Yeah cool you know it's it's we got to do that i know a lot of people and you've got every right in the world not to get vaccinated everybody's got a choice this is america but uh and i had the shot and i had the second shot and i had the same thing eric clapton had my hands hurt my my feet hurt it was a reaction 
it only lasted for a couple of months, but I get it, you know, but if we don't take that shot, literally, I think we're going to be dealing with this for the rest of our lives. It's not going to go away and God forbid it mutates again. Then we're in real trouble. I think if you're on the fence about doing it, I would say do it. Yeah, I, I definitely, I, I got mine. I'm fully vaxxed and yeah, I'm with you. It's sort of like, man, we, I would love to be able to put this thing in the rear view, but yeah, the longer that we draw it out and you know, there's a big, yeah, it's not going to go away. I mean, Russia is now on it to have tremendous problems in Russia. I mean, it's, it's, it's like the plague now and it's not going to go away unless we all face it together simultaneously all over the world. I just went to England to see my mum about three months ago and to get in, you have to be tested three days before hmm. and then show proof of vaccination that you're double vaccinated. And then when you're there, they send you two tests to take at home to make sure you didn't carry the, the infection in the day before, you know, and then after eight days, they send you another test. And then before you get back on the plane, you have to have another test with uh, the people that, that are monitoring the flights. I mean, it's really major. And um, it's okay to do that, but it's a lot of trouble and it, and it blocks up travel and it makes travel really difficult, you know, but we have to, we have to just bite the bullet here. This is bigger than we think. And I think getting vaccinated is going to like save the world. Yeah. I think eventually it's, it's I think you're right. I think eventually it's going to be, you know, you travel to certain countries, you got to get a malaria shot, you know, it's, it's just yeah. going to be, it's going to be folded into our new norm or, you know, you're going to, you go, you send your kids to public schools. They got to get their measles and mumps and all yeah. that. You know, I think it's just going to become as soon as hopefully one day, the politicization of it yeah. will, go, yeah. will go away. And it's, I think it's just going to be part of the, the new norm. Well, Yeah. I mean, when I was a kid, we got shots for polio for all sorts of things. And before that, Kids were showing up at school who'd caught polio. One of my best friends had his leg in a leg brace for, for like three years. And that was polio. And, you know, this vaccinations for TB. We all got one of those. Right. And, um, you know, I'm sure the people out there, there's tremendous trouble now with the fire department and the police in New York City. There's a mandate saying that you have to get vaccinated. And they're saying, I'm not, you know, you don't tell me what to do. And I don't want to get sick. So I understand, I get it, but I can't see an alternative. I just, I can't see an alternative without the vaccination. I really, you know, being, being in lockdown again, people are not going to go for it. There's riots and stuff now in Australia. People just will not be locked down again. And the only alternative is to get vaccinated. It is, it is, they, you know, they, they say, may you live in interesting times, but man, I, I, yeah. I, wish, I wish we didn't be on this one because yeah. man, it is, it now is, this is the, the world times. right now, crazy. the world right now, all, all the pollution and all the, uh, the, 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 the threats of, of war and the crazy stuff that's going on on the internet plus COVID. It's like, come on, you know, shut up. We've got to live together. We've got to get this together and deal with it and live together without trying to kill each other. Yeah, the idea of a global pandemic. I mean, the, what the Spanish flu lasted like two years or something, but there wasn't social media back then where everyone was right. inflamed over it, you know? Yeah, but that killed millions of people. Exactly. And it came back from the trenches in Germany, you know? It was like, uh, it's, it's swine flu. And it got to America, and there were train stations with cots in them, and hospitals were jammed. There were people dying in the street. I mean, this isn't something that's like a cartoon, 
this isn't like some alter reality. This is the serious shit. And we got to fight this thing before it gets any further down the chain, you know? Yeah, it is. It is wild. We went off there, didn't we? We went off there about getting vaccinated. We re- we really did, but you know, it's it's sort of the elephant in the room right now. But uh, but I do, you know, it is a time we can all, you know, in, enjoy music if you get if you can get out the wolf trap safely and everything. Uh, really, really, really uh, important to have live music going on in the world. Yeah, so. I think so. It's the thing that holds us all together. You see, you know, coming out to play again. We played a couple. Of, we've been out for like three months playing gigs. We go out for like two weeks at a time. Then we fly back out. I'm leaving tomorrow. We came back to California for three gigs. I had yesterday off. I have today off to do my laundry kind of thing. And then I'm off again tomorrow. And um, it's great, you know. It's, but when you get in front of those people, you see their faces. This music that we exchange with each other, it's the it's the the silver thread that holds the whole social structure together at the moment. And um, it's a beautiful thing. And I, I couldn't be happier going out on the road. You know, I'm, I just, it's, I'm just so glad to be out there and playing for people. Absolutely. Well, we're, we're glad to have you come to Wolf Trap again, everyone. It's this Wednesday at 8 PM. Uh, check your ticket availability. Now this thing's selling pretty darn fast. So make sure you get in there. Hey, thanks so much, uh, John Wade. This it's uh, we've, we've, we've all admired your music for a while, both the solo stuff and with your band. So it's really, it was a treat getting to chat with you. No, I, I really enjoyed it. I thought um, you, you're a good interview. Thanks, Jason. Uh, and, uh, and good luck with everything and stay well. All right, you too. See you, man. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for joining us on Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Remember to hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time. I wanted to take a second to tell you about an app I really enjoy. Living in the D.C. area is great, and Podcast D.C. gathers all of the local shows that I like all in one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast D.C. is the new local app with hundreds of D.C. area podcasts to choose from. I can earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts I love instantly. Available in the App Store or in Google Play, listen local with Podcast D.C.